0: You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853.
1: Next up we've got uh, Dr Maria Barge. She's the Associate Professor at Victoria University of Wellington where she previously studied before completing her PhD in Political Science and International Relations at the Australian National University in 2002. Her research interests focus on Māori politics, including constitutional change and Māori representation, voting in local and general elections in the Māori economy, including hidden and diverse economies, such as Māori in the private military industry. She also researches on matters related to Māori resources, such as freshwater, mining and renewable, Energy. Uh, kia ora, Maria. I'll hand over to you, please.
2: Kia ora, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, ngā mihi tuatahi uh, kia, kia koe. Uh, Shona, te kai whakahaere, uh, raua ko Michelle uh, me Nicholas, uh, nō ngā uh, whare pukupuka o Tāmaki Pātaka Kōrero uh, o Tāmaki makoto. Uh, Kinga ngā kai kōrero, uh, no kia tātou katoa, tēnā rā koutou. Kia ora, thank you Shona for the introduction, Uh, lovely to be here, Um, one of my favourite topics obviously and lots of um, ins and outs and really looking forward to the discussion um, part and of course some of you may still have questions that um, arise from the different matters that Andrew was raising. Um, So just before we get going, um, there are currently point. 4% Māori on the Māori electoral roll, Um, just for somebody who I think that was the question that you'd um, asked. So I'm going to be talking specifically about Māori voting because that was partly um, the topic that Shona gave me and so I've tried to narrow it down a little bit um, but wanted to just uh, say from the beginning that Māori voting of course is influenced by our broader political context um, and Andrew's given us a good sense of some of those issues there, um, but also by public opinion, some of the comments made by politicians, not just at election time, but in between elections, and those comments are about often about Māori representation and treaty partnership relation, relations. And I think all of those things feed into how Māori feel about voting and our, our different practices. Um, Another point I wanted to make before we get going is that some say that voting rates are, you know, the kind of evidence of political participation, or a lot of people equate voting with political participation. Um, Really, that's actually still quite a hotly contested idea. Um, And for me, um, there are actually lots of other ways in which we can look at political participation, and I'm going to talk about some of those. Also, for many indigenous peoples, um, there are all sorts of legacies of colonization and ongoing colonization which lead to a really low trust and confidence in the sorts of institutions that we have as many of them are remnants of a colonial era um, so you know that that needs to be factored in. I think when we think of a broader sense of political participation, um, we also need to factor in a whole lot of other institutions and practices and broaden our our thinking away from voting. But today I'm going to be talking about voting. So just to give you a sense of where I'm going to be heading as an overview, I wanted to begin by uh, mentioning that when Te Te O Waitangi was signed in 1840, Māori expected that the two strands um, of Māori political and legal institutions and practices and law would continue side-by-side with Pahia legal and political institutions and law, that there would be these two strands um, continuing within the country. Um, So I want to talk a bit about that. The second um, area I want to look at is the different Ways that Maori are voting, and in the different types of institutions. So I want to look at iwi runanga, so iwi policies, local government, and central government. And then thirdly, um, this afternoon, uh, I wanted to just talk a little bit about how, you know, we don't really have um, a complete picture of Maori voting patterns um, in these areas, but we do have some starting points. So we'll talk a little bit about turnout and voting methods that we can see. Um, But to my first point, which is about when Te Tiriti was signed, really the expectation from the Maori side anyway was that these two strands of law and politics, um, institutions and legal practices would really continue side by side. And we can see that in some of the submissions um, by Maori um, to early governments and letters um, to those early governments and in the formation of, um, say, the Pariamata Maori, the Maori parliaments, where Māori were trying to have um, the guarantees uh, from Te Tiriti or Waitangi reaffirmed by the settler parliament. But you also have runanga, Māori political institutions that continued um, from the signing of Te Tiriti, obviously they pre-existed that, um, but you can see them continuing in various sorts of forms. through to today. So I think once we, I think it's quite important to remember when we're talking about Maori voting, we're not just looking at central government or even central government and local government, we actually have a parallel political system embodied in iwi runanga um, as well. And of course, there are a couple of features to note about this, not all Maori participate in their iwi runanga tribal elections. but. Then again, not all non-Māori participate in local government um, or central government elections either, but there are some some more complex um, reasons for that. But iwi runanga are the political uh, representatives of tribal groups as we know them, representing iwi uh, Māori in tikanga Māori law and indeed in, in Pākehā law. The other point to note is that voting isn't a system uh, for electing leaders that Māori used traditionally. Uh, Traditionally, there were many other criteria to select leaders and hold those that are in power to account. And those mechanisms usually centred on the hapū as the kind of core political uh, unit, uh, holding mana whenua, so holding political authority over a particular geographical um, area. So in that sense, um, both hukapapa, genealogy, and tūrangawaiwai, or place or, or of belonging, um, were crucial um, to having a say and to being a representative. So leaders tended to be firstborn and governed through forms of consensus decision-making Although not always, you could have uh, younger folk <laughs> in the family with skills that took over, and sometimes it wasn't always consensus decision making. So, but these um, there are forms and types of uh, representation and decision making um, that continue uh, uh, from this uh, time and from these kind of precedents within iwirunanga now and post settlement governance entities, as some might. Um, might call them. So that's what we can kind of note at the outset. So iwi governance entities um, do represent their people politically um, and there's no central database and so when we're looking at voting and thinking about you know how do we measure this, um, there's no central database of iwi elections uh, and iwi clearly aren't obliged um, to collect or share their data um, with others other than their own membership. Um, that responsibility varies across different um, iwi runanga, the different sorts of trustees or uh, constitutions that they have. Um, some data is collected, some voting data is collected by the Crown, usually Te Fiti, um, for the purposes of treaty settlements, uh, ratification votes, um, but not for subsequent voting for elected representatives within um, iwi. Unlike state governments, uh, Māori governance entities aren't required to report electoral data to the general public. Um, rather, most are simply required to collect it you know, for their own internal purposes. So it means that trying to kind of dig into this area and collect this data is a pretty manual uh, and often challenging task. We often have iwi runanga, um, as I said at the beginning, you know, voting is influenced by the context, and often iwi runanga are being criticised for all sorts of things, um, usually by non-members, but sometimes by members (laughs) as well, which means that it's quite a contested area, and people are sensitive um, to sharing data um, about their internal operations, which, you know, you can kind of expect. But most iwi um, hold regular elections, usually three years, and most follow a first-past-the-post system where electors have one vote and the candidates uh, with the most votes wins. Um, There are a few variations of this. Um, Sometimes um, members have as many votes as there are vacancies. Sometimes there are other restrictions in different um, constitutions for candidates who live in the area and candidates who are away um, from the area, but it's usually candidate with the most votes wins. Um, form of electoral system. Um, So there are two main features influencing iwi elections and therefore the voting. The first relates to location. So regionally based iwi um, tend to have higher proportions uh, of members living away from home Uh, and it's really a challenge for those iwi runanga to keep their members engaged um, in voting um, processes. Um, And it's common to have restrictions on where candidates live um, and make sure that they're within the area that they're standing in, in the same way that we have those sorts of restrictions at central government level um, as well. But from a Māori perspective, part of that is about this idea of ahi ka. And um, it, within kind of tikanga Māori, the, the idea is that those who really do keep um, the home fires burning, the ahi ka uh, burning, have um, slightly more of a say about things that are happening in the area than those who have gone away. And there are rules about, in, in much the same way as we have at central government level, with general elections, if you've been away too, too long, too many years overseas, um, you forfeit some of your rights to be able to vote um, in general elections. For iwi runanga, um, usually it's uh, several generations that you have to have been away before you forfeit those rights. But there are ideas around residency, Um, and representation that are are linked. Um, The next feature influencing EWI elections is the voting method. Um, Conduct of EWI elections tends to be, these days, outsourced to companies, to private companies that specialise in election services. And this is also the case, actually, with local government elections. You'll notice when your papers, your voting papers come, they have uh, the name of a, a company at the top there as well. Um, so that sort of outsourcing has occurred with the iwi runanga, as, as, as it has done in local government. For many of the smaller iwi, clearly they can't afford those sorts of services and need to sort of fumble through often the process um, of elections, either in person um, or many of them have requirements in their constitutions to have postal voting um, also. Um, the other aspect of this is that while we still have a lot of debate within Department of Internal Affairs and local government around the benefits and risks of internet voting, um, iwi runanga have been using internet voting for, in some cases, decades, um, and they're very experienced um, in in these kinds of um, methods. Usually, there's still you can still see a preference for postal voting, and most. I don't think there are any iwi runanga that have moved solely to internet voting. There's usually the combination of postal um, and internet voting or going in person uh, to a voting place. Um, um, But the the use of internet voting for iwi runanga has been increasing. um, And for some iwi, it's seen as a a way to reduce costs, uh, particularly for those large iwi... Um, that have a very high proportion of members living outside of the area or in fact living overseas. Um, a lot of Iwi just don't have the resources to maintain their Iwi registers, keep you know the very sort of basics around up-to-date address information. I mean it's it's difficult even for the Electoral Commission to maintain some of that data. For Iwi Runanga with you know meager resources, usually that's very difficult to have somebody working and um, maintaining tribal registers. Um, So, again, many of them are thinking if you can outsource that to a a company that specialises in electoral uh, election services, um, that may be a more efficient way um, to to do it. The results um, that we can see internationally around internet voting, though, are still mixed about whether they, in fact, increase voter participation uh, or increase turnout. Um, there's, there's really kind of mixed studies um, from Australia, Estonia, uh, a number of other places where they already have um, internet voting. Um, the other issue for uh, Māori, of course, is the digital divide. And we saw um, the absolute kind of debacle with the 2018 census, which had a digital first uh, model. Uh, we can see that had significant negative impacts on the ability of Māori to participate um, there, and so we can kind of think through um, some of those digital divide issues with voting um, as well. Um, so, but I, in the last sort of five years, been doing some research into the data that is uh, available uh, from iwi runanga around uh, turnout and methods, um, and Arama Rata, who's at uh, Waikato University and I have analysed election results from a range of um, different sources. We've collected as many um, pieces of data f- from elections that are publicly available from iwi, iwi runanga, and we've kind of uh, crunched those together. One of the things that we've found is it's pretty messy. Um, it's hard to get consistent data to debate, to be able to really draw any conclusions. All we can uh, we really have is some tentative starting points, I think, is, is, is the best way to put it. Um, So we analysed the publicly available data from Iwi Runanga and um, we centred some of our results onto 2018, which is where we had the most um, uh, pieces of data to kind of cobble together. And there the average um, across a number of observations of voter turnout was um, 24.8% turnout for Iwi Runanga. Elections, so uh, that was sort of one of the starting places that we had from publicly available data, um, and I'll just I'll talk about a couple of um, specific iwi cases in a moment as well, so you've got a sense of comparison. In terms of the method and the internet voting from this publicly available data, um, what we found was that there is increasing internet voting, but still av- the average is around um, forty two. Uh, 0.3%. And as I said, there's a lot of variability um, across different entities, um, which kind of drag that up. Um, so it's, it's probably, yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's, I mean, that's from the publicly available data. We also looked um, closely at um, Teotua Lakes Trust. I'm from uh, Teotua and Ngāteawa, so I figured it's always best with Māori research to start by looking at um, your own uh, iwi um, and um, liaising with your own um, tribal representatives before you start um, looking further afield. And also because, as I said at the beginning, it is a bit of a sensitive area. A lot of iwi are sensitive of being about being criticised because they often feel that pressure from um, a number of different, um, different areas. So for the Te Lakes Trust, um, uh, their election in 2015, um, their turnout was 25.4%, uh, and, um, and then their subsequent election in 2018 um, was, um, just looking through my notes here for that, 18.76%. Um, 18, um, 18. So you can see a bit of a change there. So we're still around um, the, the 20s um, here. In terms of methods, um, well in 2015, 23% of those votes were in, using internet voting, um, but in 2018 the only option available was postal, so there's, there's kind of no point of comparison on the method there. For Te or this is another um, runanga that we uh, worked closely with and um, were happy to share their data with us. Um, their turnout had, had changed uh, quite a bit in 2000. We looked at a number of different um, observations, if you like, across different elections. In 2010, their turnout was 36%, um, and in 2013 and 2016, it was 27%. Um, and their internet voting again had increased, um, but uh, was 27% um, uh, on average uh, in 2016 across different. Um, electorates, if you like, within within their um, runanga. So that's just to give you a sort of sense of the kind of thing that's happening at an iwi runanga level, and um, I think it's really important to talk about uh, these tribal governance entities um, to, to sort of remind ourselves that actually for many Māori, the two sets um, of law, legal institutions, political institutions that were reaffirmed in Te or Waitangi um, actually are still a reality, continuing alongside local government and central government. So the second main place um, that Māori are voting that I want to look at now is in local government. Um, and for most councils, Māori can only vote uh, in general wards or constituencies. Um, and you know, it's a real frustration. Local government doesn't collect ethnicity data um, for, for those seats, so it's very difficult to draw any conclusions um, about the voting patterns. It's not, not readily available. Um, however, the Bay of Plenty Regional Council has three Māori constituencies, uh, the Waikato Regional Council has two, and the Wairua District Council has a, a multi-member Māori ward uh, with three councillors, Um, And these areas provide us um, really a glimpse, again, it's sort of partial data in many ways, but a glimpse of the ways in which Māori are voting at a local government level. Um, One thing that we we can see is that voter turnout doesn't appear to be declining in these Māori wards and constituencies in the same way that it is in the general wards and constituencies, and that's actually at local government level and a central government um, level. It's been declining for sort of the last 25 years, and that's internationally what's happening in a lot of um, other democracies, um, also. The other thing we can see is that turnout is lower in Māori wards and constituencies than general ones, um, but it doesn't continue, it doesn't seem to be fluctuating downwards in the downward trend as in the, um, the other seats. Would really be great if local government could start collecting ethnicity data, so we start can build a better picture. Um, But this is sort of all we have at the moment. In terms of the average overall turnout across contested Māori wards and constituencies in 2019, was 39.48%. And so that's in the contested seats of those that I mentioned in Bay of Plenty Regional Council, Waikato Regional Council and Wairua, um, and the average turnout um, back in 2016 um, was 26.7 percent. So in 2019, 39, um, roughly 39 percent, back in 2016 it was 26 <laughs> percent. Actually um, it looks like an increase, although it's, you've got to take some caution with this because we're talking about there about contested seats. Um, and so we've had a number of uncontested seats um, in the last um, 2019 election. Um, so there's some um, variability. Just for those of you who are wondering what the comparison is with general um, seats at a local government level, average turnout in 2019 was 41%. Um, percent. So um, we, we know that even for general general seats, um, at a local government level, their uh, turnout is um, is less than at a in, a g- in general elections, for, you know, for central government. In terms of um, Bay of Plenty Regional uh, Council, they so they have their own uh, legislation and have had Maori uh, constituencies since two thousand and one. Um, and again, there's been some fluctuation um, there, uh, but um, in two thousand and eighteen, they had sort of twenty nine but in one of their constituencies, this is where you get this real variability, one of their constituencies, the Kohe constituency, they had a 41.6% turnout. So, similar to the average in general um, wards and constituencies. So, some real kind of differences once you dig in here. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, For the Waikato Regional Council, I I should just mention, and the Wairo District Council, they're the only two Um, councils that have utilised the Local Electoral Act um, to to bring in uh, Māori wards and and constituencies. You know, this option is available um, to all councils. Um, They can um, decide to have guaranteed Māori representation, um, but very few of them have opted for this. And sadly, in many places um, where councils themselves have been quite brave and decided to um, have guaranteed Māori representation and, you know, introduce, uh, establish a Māori ward or constituency, Um, they have been polled by 5% of their electors um, and have had those decisions overturned. And, um, you know, this is former New Plymouth Mayor Andrew Judd has a kind of ongoing campaign on this particular issue, which um, just sort of backs up many Māori who have had a similar campaign for many, many years um, around the kind of inequities here in our system. There aren't other decisions about um, constituencies and wards that councils make which can be overturned by 5% of electors. When they establish a rural ward, for example, 5% of electors cannot put in a petition to have that overturned. So here you can see there's know, it's racially discriminatory the way the legislation is designed at the moment, in that Māori wards or constituencies can be done away with in this manner, and in fact have been. There were five votes, uh, public polls in 2018, um, which overturned decisions that councils had made. Um, Anyway, so that's again, you know, when we're thinking about voting, when your members of your community Or groups like Hobson's Pledge come into your community from outside and actively campaign against a decision that your councillors made, um, you know, it's that impacts on Māori voting and and the kind of trust and confidence that they have in the community uh, and in the uh, institutions that are representing the community. Um, So uh, pretty unfortunate actually um, in that regard. so the Waikato Regional Council, so they were one of the councils in 2019 that had uncontested um, uh, members. Um, in, um, yeah, so it's not uh, really possible to, to tell much. <laughs> you know, for researchers, for political scientists, it's difficult when there's an um, un, uncontested um, seat because you don't get the data about what's going on there. For the Wairo District Council, so it was their first election in 2019, there are three members in the Māori ward and there are three members in the general ward in, for the Wairo District Council, um, and their voter turnout was 45%. So, um, again, you know, pretty... Um, a lot of enthusiasm, you could say, there to the changes that they've um, made. In terms of central government, um, as Andrew mentioned, we have seven Māori electorates, Um, and he's gone over quite a number of the different issues around them and the distinct elements. Uh, As he mentioned, the size, you know, electorate size, they're huge, Taitonga, um, entire South Island and Wellington, um, you know, makes it it quite difficult when you're representing so many diverse um, communities. Um, But the other important thing to note about them is that you know, all of your constituents are Māori. So the unique thing about being a Māori representative, in that case, is you're representing the aspirations of your constituents, all of whom are Māori. So that's something quite distinct, Um, and it is a feature uh, in our system which is, um, you know, maybe a minimum sort of minimal form of recognition of the Te that was guaranteed to Maori in the Treaty, um, but it's the the form of recognition that we have at the moment. So, at a central in general elections, um, turnout in the Maori electorates in 2017 was 66.7%. Um, um, this is a slight increase uh, on the turnout in the Maori electorates in 2014. When it was sixty-five percent, uh, and if you're wanting a comparison, the average jet turnout in general electorate seats was seventy-nine point eight percent. So some uh, difference there, certainly a lower turnout, and it's um, bounced all over the place. Really, there's sort of two other significant dips in two thousand and two and two thousand and eleven in voter turnout. Um, in two thousand and two, um, was it at its lowest point, fifty-seven. Uh, percent, And there are a number of reasons um, for this kind of up and down, um, which we can talk about if we get to it in, in the election, in the question time. So there are um, other factors to, con- to consider when thinking at a, a general election uh, sort of space influencing these votings. One of them is around political parties standing candidates, or I should say political parties not standing candidates in Māori electorates. For many years, a number of different political parties had policies and were very open about wanting to abolish Māori seats. Um, Many of them have become a little quieter about that policy after sort of active um, opposition from Māori groups and and Māori people. Um, And... But to me, one of the other ways in which they're subtly doing this um, is by not standing candidates in Māori electorates. So for Māori voters, um, the range of choice um, just often isn't there, and that's really sad. And I'm always encouraging um, members of the National Party or New Zealand First to advocate to their leadership to stand again in Māori electorates, stand candidates again, um, to make them really contested um, and slightly more exciting um, um, options for Māori voters. So, back in uh, 2017, for example, in the Wairiki and Hodaki Waikato electorates, there were only two political parties standing candidates there Labor and the Māori Party. So, as a voter, you know, that doesn't give you a huge range um, of choice and not the same range that you see in general electorate seats. But for me, this is. You know, my sense of that is in part it's a, a sneaky way um, of political parties advocating for the end of these seats by showing this disrespect and disregard to them. Um, clearly the seats have been dominated for many, many years by the Labour Party um, and they held them for some seriously long decades um, and the party vote in the Māori electorates continues to to go largely um, more than 50% um, to the Labour Party. But in 1996, um, New Zealand First um, really took out um, all, at that time there were only five uh, Māori seats, they took all of those out, um, so they have in fact, st- uh, you know, stood in the Māori electorates previously, I uh, really encouraged the New Zealand First Party to stand again in, uh, in the Māori seats, so they took them all out in 1996, um, and that was, you know, evidence of a real dissatisfaction um, of Labor at that time. Um, but over the years, uh, the seats returned uh, in 1999 and 2002 back um, to uh, Labor, uh, Labor MPs. Um, it was only really the Māori Party uh, which came into being at the 2000, or just before the 2005 general election, um, when the Māori Party won four of the seven seats. Um, and again, sort of shook up the dynamics in those seats. Um, However, support for Māori Party uh, candidates in in the seats has declined after 2008, uh, with their support of successive national governments, Um, and at the last election, 2017, um, the Māori Party were not returned um, to any electorate seats, um, or in fact to Parliament um, at all, because they didn't... Um, receive more than 5% of the party vote either. So these are some of the um, the, the dynamics we have around um, voting. And as I said at the beginning, it is influenced by our broader political context, the kinds of pressures, the kinds of rhetoric that we hear um, in the media and from politicians that has an impact on um, trust and confidence that Māori have in these different um, systems. And... um, and whether there's an appetite um, and understanding from non-Māori around the importance of uh, Māori representation and Māori, or treaty relationships, I guess, between uh, Māori and the Crown. Andrew spoke about the Royal Commission on the Electoral System. And um, I wanted to just, um, you know, they made a number of provisos, as he mentioned, around their recommendations. One of the others um, that they, they mentioned was that really um, the constitu- this, what they called the special constitution of the constitutional standing of Māori, deriving from the Treaty of Waitangi, um, they said needed to be addressed to ensure that Māori rights were constitutionally recognised including to a just and equitable share of political power, and to me that's a really important point. This is 1986, the Royal Commission was saying, you know, at that time Māori were waiting um, to be, to have rights constitutionally recognised, and to be included um, with a just and equitable share of political power. You know, so for many Māori, you know, we're still waiting (laughs) for that to occur and, you know, constitutional conversations are evolving and ongoing, Um, but I think some of the voting rates that we have um, reflect that uh, Māori continue to be waiting uh, to see an equitable um, share of political power and um, hopefully, uh, with a little bit more research into this area, and, um, and education around New Zealand history and the guarantees of uh, Te Tiriti or Waitangi and the idea that these two strands of uh, political systems and legal systems actually do continue side by side, we might come up with innovative ways to actually share that political power. Um, so thank you very much, I'm gonna leave it there and really look forward to some of your questions. Yeah, I found that
3: fascinating because there were certain aspects of the runanga um, I didn't know about. So I just personally want to thank you for that because I've lived both in Hamilton and Rotorua and had very close workings with, with people from the community, but, but didn't know. It's like, now I want to know. I have a question before the other ones that are turning up. Um, were there, how did, were the iwi um, positions pl- put in place prior to Pākehā? arriving here. So what was there a voting system, per se, in the hierarchy before that? Or was it kind of a modification of what they were perceiving Pākehā
2: doing? Um, So no, Māori didn't use um, voting uh, in the way that we understand it today for electing representatives or holding them to account. Um, Usually um, it was more hierarchical in terms of you know, there were often elements Ma. of um, firstborn, other kind of features um, that are factored in in, um, in the community. So firstborn was a, a big thing, uh, but not always. So te Māori is always flexible, um, and there's always allowances for anyone who was younger and cleverer and, a, a, you know, ambitious and adapted skills um, could also be a leader. And there were also other dynamics around um, the hapū itself, um, holding leaders to account by being part of consensus decision making. Um, so those were kind of other other features of it, so that people did get a say in hui, I guess, um, in yeah. the in, in Runanga as an activity, um, and and having a say. So those were other kinds of mechanisms. R- voting um, is uh, is a method, you know, since um, the British
3: arrival, really. Hmm. I, I thought so, but you know, it's like one should never assume these things. Always good to ask the question. So, um so Pauline from Sydney has actually asked: Has there ever been any drive to make voting compulsory in New Zealand, as it is in Australia? And I don't know if you or maybe Andrew know
2: about that. Those are those sorts of perennial discussions that <laughs> that come up. You know, I think the Electoral Commission has looked into that and weighed up um, the different. Um, the kind of different stats and, and um, features that you can see from other countries. I think one of the concerns here is that, in similar to Australia, although your penalties aren't that harsh, but, um, you know, do you then criminalise people who aren't um, voting? So there's sort of different, different research either way about whether that's effective to um, force people to turn out. I mean, of course, it forces them to enrol, but whether they vote and whether it increases Turnout. I don't think there's a, it's really settled. We can see in many countries, democracies, so-called democracies around the world, a real downward trend in um, voter turnout. And that should really raise questions and does raise questions for political scientists about what's going on there. Um, do we generally have trust and confidence um, in our political institutions? What might be affecting that um, confidence?
3: Yeah, and 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 anecdotally, as an Australian who commutes across there a lot, they are debating whether to keep it compulsory as well. So yeah, there's often, It seems to be that we just often like to talk about the system, whatever the system is. We're always tweaking it, but it's one of the things I like about the flexibility with um with, with Maori law, as because uh, I'm really bad at pronunciation. I'm working on it. Ti, tikanga Maori. It's yeah, because I've, nothing worse than pronouncing it and then saying some swear word by accident. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what worry I used to do with that with treasure. I still can't get um, the treasure at a Maori elder. I, yeah, I... naughty things there. Um, So anyway Adele has asked is there a website which gives an accurate review of runanga where we could go and learn more in depth because thank you I love the presentation it just makes me want to learn more I was so unaware of so much of this information
2: no there isn't i'd love to start one up though (laughs) Um, but i'm a a bit bogged down with a couple of other things at the moment but that's uh, that's really a passion of mine and really kind of bringing it into the conversation and and digging in a bit more into the results so you know I have compiled as, as, as the years go on as much kind of publicly available data as I have uh, and been able to find but would really um, yeah that's kind of a goal of mine is to have somewhere a repository or a database of some kind but again um, you know, there's a lot of discussion these days in Māori communities about Māori data sovereignty and um, I'm in touch with the Māori data sovereignty network and so these issues are a little bit fraught in fact about you know, the, the sort of ethics um, in Māori terms, and tikanga te Māori terms, of collecting data and holding it about other iwi, are they happy with that? You know, you need to it needs to be something that um, happens at a kind of national uh, Māori level, really, to get some agreement o, o, on it. And there are quite a few iwi that are still in a very um, fraught place. Um, in the middle of treaty negotiations or under pressure from, you know, overburdened by resource consent applications from council or whatever it is. And they're just not in a position um, to be able to participate in something like this um, yet. But um, doing our best at trying to get something off the ground. So hopefully in the next year or so. um.
3: Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to go further back. Uh, There's another question. Did you look at any data from Nai Tahu Runanga?
2: No, I didn't. Uh, oh, we might have had that in our publicly available data um, scoop up, um, but I'd have to go back to the exact spreadsheet to tell you which years. Um, yeah, mostly not, I don't think so, From um, just off the top of my head. And it's quite a big, you know, we've got multi years. So, um, but uh, no, the ones that I focused in, in in detail, as I said, I figured it was best just to stick with those that I belong to and have a connection with um, first and foremost.
3: Thank you ever so much to you too, Maria. It was a hugely beneficial experience to be sitting here. And I, I want to throw back to Shona because one of the good things is, is these are recorded and they will be publicly available. So all of you who felt this was valuable, once it's up online, I encourage you all to share that link through your usual mechanisms, be that email, uh, social media, because that's one way it will be more widely known. So thank you all for coming and thank you very much for having us, Shona, at your place.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Maria. Yes, it's um, uh, it, it's music to our ears when the government announced that they were going to make uh, New Zealand history compulsory as part of the curriculum. It absolutely seemed to me that um, so ridiculous that we learned history about other countries when Mm. I was at school. Um, and very little about New Zealand history. And what history um, we did find out about um, New Zealand while we were at school was always from the Pākehā point of view. Um, so it's, um, it's and, and not always a flattering point, well, hardly ever a flattering point of view um, uh, from that context. So it's, um, it's just great. Um, more and more books are being published. And uh, there is more and more uh, talk um, out in the open, in the media, and uh, a lot of debate. So it's um, it's very healthy, I think, to, to start bringing these things forward. Um, and I can't wait till my research centre is full of children learning about New Zealand history. Not that we don't get some in already, but, you know, it's always nice to have more. Um, and, and thank you for your contribution. We We... Um, have been viewing uh, our webinar talks this year that we've been fortunate enough to do as being able to add to the New Zealand curriculum. Um, and having academics, wonderful academics like yourself and Andrew, sharing your time um, so that uh, people can get um, bite sized chunks of, of overviews of, of particular parts of history. So, thank you very much for, for your time and thank you to, as well to um, Andrew.
0: You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Library's website.